And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm chatting to comedian, author, lover of design, and man about the house, Rosso. Hello. Is, is that the intro? Is that <laughs> That's it? it. <laughs> Can you talk about my ACRA awards? <laughs> Listen, um, this is not me reeling yeah, off your on. Wikipedia page, yeah, please. mate. Yeah, <laughs> please. At least, yeah. <laughs> I feel like the, the pressure is on now because we've just noticed as soon as we press record that the batteries, the batteries are going. <laughs> Let's make it a short. <laughs> so this yeah. could be a three and a half minute yeah. chat. <clears throat> yeah. uh, I am very glad to finally have you. Ari Award. Ari <laughs> Award winning radio DJ. L- Logie nominated Logie. once. Once. Did you lo- get nominated for a Logie? Yeah, Miz and I got nominated for Unplanned, yeah. What was, was that on Comedy Channel or was that on Main? On the Nine Network. On the Nine Network. Yeah, you could have put that in the intro. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. so- How many TV Fif- shows did you do? 15 years ago or something ridiculous like that. Yeah. How many t- did we do? Yeah. Uh, what did we do? We did Unplanned. We did The B Team. We did American Rosso Show on Foxtel. Then we did a couple on the Comedy Channel, so six or something. And, and no one, Logies. And one Logie nomination. <laughs> the, the heady heights of stardom. Uh, now, let's rewind to the mm, beginning. Mm. I want to know uh, how you got into this business and what it was about it that you enjoyed and felt attracted to. When you were a little tyke, mm. baby Rosso with mm. the beard, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I didn't just want to play cricket for Australia. I wanted to be the captain. <laughs> yeah. And I, for a period of time, I thought it was going to happen. Right. I truly, in my mind, and then I started actually playing cricket and realised that there were people that were better than me. So that was probably right up there when I was seven or eight. And then I loved drama. I was such a drama nerd when I was a kid at school. And then that was sort of, I wanted to be an actor. And then I had a school counsellor who just said, you can't do that. What? Yeah. He said, what do you want to do? I said, I really want to be an actor. And he went, oh, do you know how many people can't make a living out of that? That's a stupid idea. And he crushed my dream in my mind. And so I went off and did a business degree. Um, well, didn't finish it, got kicked out. And then I had a year off or something and then I ended up going to do an arts degree at La Trobe and then there was, I was looking at the subjects and went, drama, that's right, I like drama. And so I ticked on that and did drama and history and that sort of got me back into performing, which was great. And I sort of went from doing some bad plays to playing in bands and then comedy. So... What's really interesting was I was doing drama with Jane Gazzo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Janie. And anyway, we were dating for a little while. Were well, there's, you now? There's a scoop. <laughs> and Janie was playing in a band at the time and she had a radio show on Triple R and she was very driven. And she sort of said to me, she said one day, you know, she said, oh, you're a funny guy, you know, like, what are your achievements? And I went, oh, I play cricket. <laughs> And she said, you know, you should really do something. And she sort of gave me a rocket up the bottom. And I was inspired because she was a non-musician who was writing songs. Right. And so I thought, you know what, I can do that. And so I went home to the guys I was living with and said, I've ended this in the Battle of the Bands at university. And, and both, you had no musical? No, I could, I'd done a couple of musicals at school or something. I could sing a little bit. but And so we, I literally press-ganged the guys into the band in my house who are all musicians and that's the thing I'd, I'd been spending a lot of time in the music scene because my friends were all playing in bands and i i was very jealous and i wanted to want it in did you at least have the drainpipe jeans that was important if you wanted to be in a band you had to have skinny jeans well we had fabergés because it was a gag oh, band but okay. um that went that was before that it was before that time right so this is 1993 
gosh, long time. A long time ago. So I went to, and they all went, oh, we're not playing our proper instruments. So Kit, who's my best friend, who's a guitarist, he picked up, the, learned to play the drums overnight and Killer, our bass player, was a sax player. And Carpsy was another friend of ours. Anyway, so we did the gig and won the heat. So hang on. No, none of you had any musical experience. No, they they were proper players. They were playing their non-normal instruments, apart from Carpsy, our guitarist. Why didn't they just play the instruments? Because they were they... embarrassed and they didn't want to take it. They were very serious musicians and I was like... Right, so if you're a I guitarist said, and you go on the drums, you're like, well, it's not even yeah, my it's real not, instrument not anyway. not a proper band where that's our licence to be shit. Got you, got you. So is this Black Rose? Is this yeah. the beginning of Black Rose? <laughs> yeah. And was it a conscious decision at the time not just to be like musically shit but mm. were you were you like we're going to ham this up it's yeah gonna it was be... like yeah it was like an Oz rock version of spinal tap really yes and so we had the we wrote the songs and we had three really good songs we did a, that were funny and everyone laughed and loved it and then we just started gigging and we, i played in that band for the around melbourne for probably four or five years and so and that was your first proper sort yeah, of on-stage stuff? Yeah, and did reasonably well within, you know, played at all the venues, you mm. know, like sort of all the big venues. We'd, we'd headline now, we'd sell them out and got played on public radio and all that sort did of stuff. Did you? Yeah, yeah it, was, it was sort of, um, sometimes we sort of came close to being a sort of tism-esque sort of thing. And we had a reasonable following. When did you think, or did you ever think, shit, this could actually be something we could do as a career? I, th- I think it was, uh, probably the guys just didn't believe in it. Right. That was the toughest thing. They were, they just, they were in their own, because we, we started getting all the really good gigs that some of them, their other bands would never have got. And we started, when, and then Carpsy, our guitarist, fell in love and left. And by that stage, we'd started playing Friday nights at the Espy in the front bar, which is a good gig. Because mm. you'd get all the people coming in just to see whatever. So, you know, you're playing to five, 600 people a night type stuff and get, getting them to go mad and playing up there Kazali and all this other stuff. And it was a good it was a good act by that stage. We got quite good at it. Mm. Um, and then he left and we never really – and that was about the same time as and I started working together. So it was really, which, which way am I going to go with this? And the guys weren't really into it and it sort of annoyed me. But Mez was really into doing what we were doing. So that was sort of – that pushed it to the other side. I guess that's the frustrating thing about doing something with more than one – more oh. than just yourself because you're entirely at the mercy of everybody else's life choices. Yeah, but it was – I loved the camaraderie of yeah. being in a band more than any other camaraderie I've had apart from having brothers, I suppose. I just – and I still love them. And when we talk about it all, you know, we think about playing again. It's just beautiful. And we just fall into it, you know, a bunch of middle-aged men who are just living small segments of a rock and roll dream. I've probably fluked all of it because I just really wanted, I pushed it. I was really driven with it. I really wanted it to work. The band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And I was, because it was, it was cool. I loved it. Were you driven before that? Like you said that Jane was saying to you, what are you doing with your life? Before then, were you just sort of happy to coast or? Yeah, I was just not, I could. I never had anything to focus it in on. So I'd focus in on things like I'd have a share house and I just want it to look amazing. So that's where the design thing came in. And I would, our share houses always had secondhand furniture in, but they always looked great. And I was really into that. Or we'd, I'd, I was big on organising parties or whatever or. There were certain things I really liked doing, but yeah, once I got my head around, I really liked being on stage and I liked organising things. It was good. And then being in a band was really instrumental in the way that I created what we did with Mez in terms of the way we did shows. Mm. I treated what we did in the same way that I treated band gigs. 
the way we used venues, our pricing, and how we marketed them. And so we took a lot of that stuff out of the stand-up rooms. I, I, I found the stand-up rooms to sort of, and still do, I find them really old-fashioned and I've never felt particularly comfortable in them. And so we created, I suppose, a, a new platform to do things. And that was pretty popular pretty quickly. He said that the first time he saw you guys play that he, he was saying he was at in Collingwood, I think it was, with his brother and his brother had told him to come downstairs and he was trying to tune a chicken getting nowhere. <laughs> and then his brother said, mate, one of the members of the band's wearing moon boots. And he's like, okay, I've got to see this. And then he said to me, as soon as I saw them, I thought, this is funny. You couldn't tell whether they had mental illness for real or whether they were just yeah. exceptionally clever. Yeah, a bit of column A, column B, I think. <laughs> a little bit of both. But when we when we first met was at the SB backstage at the stand-up night. And, you know, I think he was the first person I'd met that I didn't know had seen the band. You know, I'd seen a couple of times. And I think he... That's what, why we became friends, because he appealed to my ego. <laughs> <laughs> he knew how to get you. <laughs> but he was a very, very good comedian. So you'd never, you hadn't seen him? That was the first time I saw him, and he was brilliant. On his day, there, there isn't any better in this country. Mm. When he's on full flight, none of them can touch him. Um, and I, I saw him do one gig once. It was magical. He was, it, when it was an outdoor stage at the Brunswick Street Festival, and he used to do this gear about having a rap mat that he used to take everywhere. And people loved it. And he did that in an outdoor environment at a festival. And people were just stopping like he – not like stopping for a busker, but everyone was just like – an incredibly difficult thing to do, mm. but still one of the best things I've ever seen. Yeah, I think when he's in full flight, which is not always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, still, I, still, I, I still stand by, yeah, there, there is no better in this country. Were you doing any – Man and the Mike style stuff, or were you just doing Black Rose when you guys met? You weren't doing uh, any stand up. I was doing Black Rose, and then I was doing stand up as the character from the band, right? As Rosso, who was the character from the band. Why did you not want to do stand up as you? Um, I suppose I never really thought about being a stand up comedian. It was just I liked doing funny, and then I think I same thing. I ended a comedy competition as because I'd had all the jokes that I'd written because I was doing stand up, I suppose, with the band. And then I hadn't done – I did a little bit, but not as much as everyone else at the time. Mm. Um, and I wasn't really known as a stand-up comedian and at that stage. I was like did the band and a little bit of s some stand-up. I lacked a bit of confidence with it, to be honest. With the stand-up stuff? The stand-up, yeah, um, in those early days. And it took me a long time to sort of get my head around that. And, and I think that's why, because of a confidence, being in a duo suited me. I guess you going on as Rosso from Black Rose is sort of the equivalent of your mates playing a different instrument. Mm. Yeah, exactly so. And then, and then I started writing some gear, and I, you know, and then in those days, I'm like, I was smoking in those days. I'd be on stage smoking cigarettes, telling jokes. So funny, <laughs> so funny, weird. Be on stage at the ESPY, and you'd be like telling, you know, and then with my denim jacket and some '90s gear and a pair of Converse All Stars, smoking darts. And, what was the ESPY like at that time? Because it was like a lot of the comedians that people would know from telly and radio mm. now were kicking around that joint at that time, weren't they? Yeah, sometimes it could be amazing and sometimes it could be awful. Um, but it, was, it, was, it just gave you an opportunity. It was always there and it was your name would be on the, in the street press, which was a big deal at the time. And then, you, you know, and, and everyone was very supportive. You know, mm. those guys like Greg Fleet was always very friendly and always had great things to say. So... There was a great camaraderie 
going on there and for whatever reason um there's a bunch of them of us who came through at all about that same time so that was like so pete hellier husey will right yeah mm. michelle was kicking around yeah then, yeah, yeah. Really good people. When you guys met, you and Mez, did you hit it off immediately? I mean, obviously he's appealed to your ego with the yeah, love we, of Black Rose. I think um, we both had slightly older dads and I know it sounds weird and our fathers didn't like each other much. <laughs> they never really – they weren't similar in any way but I think we were old-fashioned in some ways because of our fathers. Right. And so I think that was part of the sort of – yeah, I don't know. We, we had a similar – sense of humour despite being very different people I love you know because uh, I've had Mez on this show and I love it because he says that exact same thing mm. he's like we're very very different but if you put asked us to put a list of five things in order of funniness mm. we would probably list yeah. the same same yeah. way and we always and still do laugh at the same things and I enjoy that about our friendship mm. um, it was good and when it took off it was pretty extraordinary what happened in those early days? So you, you just met, you became friends. Did you start talking about writing together and doing stuff together quite quickly? Or? No, I'd been doing some other stuff. I was at the band and then I was doing this other sort of comedy trio thing with a couple of other friends from university. And I did one show that was terrible, like really terrible. And Why? It was not considered. It was just, it just, it was just <laughs> terrible. <laughs> it's just not funny. Right. Some of it was, but it's just not funny. Anyway, right. so I just stopped and I just... Didn't perform for a couple of months, and I, I, which has always good for, been always good for me. Where I just stopped, think I'm not going to do anything for a while. I'm just going to think about what I really want to do. So I, instead of performing in a play at university, I painted the sets or something. And then I think I sort of had this idea, and I, I rang up Mez and said, "Look, do you want to do a show? I've got this idea. I've got I had a few thoughts of things we could do." And he was really into it, and we mm. spent a lot of time working on it. And we did this show called Pissheads from Outer Space at the Rochester Castle Hotel, and his brother Beachy did these great posters and it was three bucks and we'd fill, we started filling the venue and we would go out and we'd make little films and we'd put it, you know, you'd bring in a TV and put it on stage and a VCR. And I started editing our things within a camera. I'd plug the camera into my VHS player and I'd pause, stop. (laughs) I became really good at it. That's quite a skill. Yeah. And so I just, and, and people really liked, you know, these prank things we did and, we started doing prank letters and then we'd do some sketches and it was good. It was really good. And so, and I really just, I always thought that an hour of stand up, this, we can do better than that. Mm. We can do something different. Do you uh, think that's why it took off? Because it was different to yeah. what everybody else was doing? Yeah. And no one really understood it. Yeah. <laughs> we had an overhead projector and we were doing prank letters and stuff. And it was completely different. And so, for an audience that had, you know, like, oh, yeah, here we go. Someone's doing an hour of just talking. There was something for everyone in it. And if it wasn't good for a while, there was something else coming around the corner. Were you a prankster as a kid? Like what's, did you, because that sort of stuff you Prank either... phone calls. Yeah, we used to ring up people all the time. Really? Because yeah. that sort of stuff, I reckon it's either in you or it makes you want to vomit for anxiety. Mm. Like you need some, there's a standing on the edge of the cliffness about mm. that, that you need to sort of enjoy. I don't enjoy it anymore. It's not really my thing anymore, but at the time... People liked it. And I always went with what people liked. Did you just like the reaction at the end that was sort of... Are you... Because when you were at that stage, you know, we were writing letters to celebrities, right? These mm. prank letters that we were doing and you'd pretend to be a kid and you'd go, oh, dear, Mr. Emder, you've got to... 
funny <laughs> waistcoat, blah, blah, blah. I can't even remember how they went. But anyway, and then he'd write back and then you'd put him up on the overhead projector. Right. And, of course, we were so disconnected from Larry. Yeah. Ironically, you know, I emceed his 50th birthday. You know, it's a weird <laughs> world where you're pranking him and then you become his mate. Um, we, it was sort of that us against them thing, which was big in the 90s, which is like, oh, you know, we're in t- inner, inner city Fitzroy. Mm. Like we were, it's very indie what we were doing. Mm. I know it seems strange to think that this sort of American Rosso as a brand um, <laughs> was in Indian, but that was our background. But that, that sort of like prankiness, even further on in your later shows and stuff, that was very much a part of what you did. You know, it was like mm, you were yeah, driving was, past people, <laughs> screaming at them in the street. Like, I don't know, that takes some balls, I guess. Yeah, but it's just the, it was the childish nature of those things. Did you, know? you feel like you were getting paid for most of your career to be a child? At times, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because, you know, we didn't – we weren't great preppers. Really? Mm. So you were doing most of the stuff on the fly? Oh, not for TV. But what would – for those of you who – the radio nerds out there, this guy Jeremy Black, right, who's producing the show at ARM with Matty Basley. Mm. Jez, Jez is a great guy. He was a great producer. And he was he was panelling for us, I think, at one stage. And mm. he'd just come off doing a breakfast show in Gold Coast or something. And he said he walked in and then we had the whiteboard there. And I think there was one thing on it for the show. <laughs> and that was me. I used to do talk about product recalls out of the paper. You know, when they'd have a product recall and I had a little product recall <laughs> tag. And then I'd just go, you won't believe this, Mez, but yeah. Sanyo radio has been recalled because it's got a faulty knob. And then we'd talk about knobs or something. <laughs> and we would literally do talkback topics off the back of whatever we were talking about. So they wouldn't be planned. I would just go, oh, let's take some calls on this. And that really wasn't how most people did a radio show. Yeah. But that also requires two people in a studio who can constantly bat stuff up. Yeah. So obviously you guys were the type of people that just could fill two, three hours of radio just yeah, by throwing stuff out. Yeah, we just go something stupid out. and we're doing a talkback topic and then what's it go? I'm going to go and do a stupid voice and he'd run around and call up. And, and so most of that was sort of done on the fly, which goes – is. Which is sad that you can't do that anymore because there is something amazing about being able to do that, but also something really unprofessional about it as well. Yeah, and also mildly terrifying. Well, I think it's, I don't know, I mean, I'm a bit of an over-prep kid because I'm like, look, you need to know that the, the security blanket is down mm. just in case. No, we never <laughs> but we treated, we treated it like a live show because we, um, we always had structure to our live shows, but we would quite often could go out and freestyle 40 minutes of just whatever. Because Mez is a really great improviser mm. and he's got the gift of the gab and he can, he'll roll something around until it's funny. Sometimes it might take fun. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he'll give that. So there was something, yeah, that we were quite confident in terms of being able to go out on stage. And so, you know, we're just going to see what happens. How, in the early days, you said you were starting to fill rooms. Obviously, we're pre-social media here. How were you spreading the word? Was it just that people were finding out about you and telling their mates? Were you playing specifically comedy venues like Harold Park style and yeah, that people those, were going uh, anyway? We have two music music venues. That's how we. That's why that sort of band thing. Um, mm. Poster runs, and I used to in, I used to make sure people came. So I got that from the band. I, like this is. You would just sit there and ring people, tell them, mm. about it. I've got a gig, I've got a gig, and sit there and you'd hope you get their answering machine so you didn't have to talk to them. <laughs> and you'd ring everyone and tell them to come. <laughs> and Merrick had a bunch of mates from school or people just used to come because they were waiting for him to fail. 
was pretty cool. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Um, Still bums on seats. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there was just a bit of a buzz. And by the time we did our, the next show that really took off American Russo 5000, it was at a good venue. And then we went on Triple J. Once we went on Triple J for the first time, it exploded. Did you have any kind of plan or were you just never winging it and seeing what happened? Yeah, and I, I think I was still at university too. And it went, actually, when I finished university, it sort of, my mind, I was like, I'm done with that side. Now it's it's going to take off. And Were you one of the first of that crew, like your Wills, Michelle's, Roves, that started to get into that mainstream media, radio kind of thing? Uh, I Were think guys... Rove with the show on nine was probably first. Maybe. I don't know. Mm. But, you know, we went to the J. Because we were on the J's part-time for a couple of years. And that enables us to tour and to tour well. So we went to South Australia and then through our first fringe and went, ooh, there's some people here. Yeah, that, I guess that's the thing about Triple mm. J is that national reach means yeah. that you can just roll anywhere and all of a sudden yeah. you're like, oh, shoot, people know who we are yeah. in Broome. <laughs> well, that, and, and also there's one, and it's unfortunate, but you can only be new once. And that time when you're new, oh, yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, it's all a bit exciting. Um, How did you feel when that was happening? Were you a bit, did it Did it go to your head? Were you a bit, oh. oh I just liked that we could make a living out of it. Mm. You know, got off the dole and it meant that there was a true pathway for ideas and across everything. And so we had always had great artwork, interesting merch, and we just have a shot at stuff. And so we, we, we branded really well and branded in a way that, no one else was doing at the time in terms of we had a, a really good aesthetic of things that we did and that was a big part of it. And, we, you know, we'd get stickers made and all that sort of stuff and people mm. had them forever. So we'd give away stickers because I always liked, you know, the radio stations did that and I knew that people put them on their bumper bars and whatever. Mm. So we spent money on those sorts of things and I think, you know, Merrick's brother being able to do all that artwork and had a good knack for that stuff. And that, our, that back collection of posters I, I always loved. Whenever we did something, they were all, we always did something fun with them. So, yeah, there was – I liked that side of it because we were, you know, if we, whether we were making films or doing prank letters or creating an aesthetic or, a, dare I say, it, a design aesthetic that sort of went past the idea of here's a guy who's a stand-up comedian or a girl who's a stand-up comedian. Mm. It, was a, it was a worldview. It was a bit weird, but, yeah. Did people, because it wasn't the done thing at the time, did people think it was a bit odd in the comedy scene? Like – was it a bit unusual for if most people are just standing up there doing their own solo thing? Or do you reckon people were like, oh, I want a partner? <laughs> I think they, I think people generally, because we, a duo, and we were a duo in a different way. We didn't rehearse anything in terms of this is my line, this is your line type mm. stuff. So we were never really that, you know, people might have thought I was a straight man, but it's not really, we didn't really do that. Because we didn't come at it, we didn't. We'd already started doing things individually, and we remember we all, all we sort of got together to do one show, and then it ended up being fifteen years or something. When you did that one show, did you guys basically look at each other and think this is something we should do more often? Oh, we'd go and go to the punters club afterwards and drink black and tans and talk about how great we were, which is exactly <laughs> what I did with my band. So you know, <laughs> it was good. I was talking to Mezzi about some of the crazy shit that you guys used to get up with and up to and the sketches and stuff and I was asking him if he has a favourite or one that he just thought this is so effing ridiculous and he was saying that the one that he just he could remember was Fiberglass Rabbithead Boy. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a favourite or one that you just think what the F were we doing or? Ooh, those early ones. Fiberglass Rabbithead Boy. (laughs) 
<laughs> Which, I mean, if you haven't listened to the Mez episode, do, do yeah, yourself a favour and yeah, go, go back and listen to it. But it involved a fiberglass rabbit head that I'd got. That from you'd gotten from someone that oh. wasn't supposed to be worn as a costume. Yeah, and just... but the same one. And there was like a, something about the magic of a dan- danger filled bag or something. It was like. And he played a character Dur- called Crazy Derek. Yeah, magical child. Yeah. <laughs> and then Fiberglass Rabbit Head Boy would just pop up in a jump cut somewhere yeah. and then he'd just go, what are you doing, Fiberglass Rabbit Head Boy? <laughs> and I'm going to get you with my magical danger field bag, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah no, it wasn't genius. <laughs> Yeah, was... He was saying that he couldn't quite work out whether it was genius it or was all, shit. I've still got it on. I've still got it in the Do archives. Do you have everything? Yeah. Still? They're all in the National Archives. Are they? Mm. That's cool. Yeah, I put them in about yeah about 10 years ago. All the tapes. All the tapes. I took all the tapes from Triple J when we left because I knew they'd destroy them or chuck them in the bin. Like I'm an archive nerd. Yes. I, I'm a history nerd. So I, I just didn't want I just I'll leave them somewhere and they'll deteriorate. So I put them all in the archives. But yeah, I'm just trying to think of a sketch. No, we did. The, we used to do this thing called Go, where I play this character called Go, Gold Coast Darren or Gold Coast Phil, <laughs> and and he Mez played this character, and then he'd, I, I'd be like, it would be like a selling stuff. Oh, I've got a treat for you. Introducing Gary Deb Partner Two Thousand, and Mez had come out as you know with a bad suit on and a wig as Gary the Deb Partner, and and then he'd and he'd just do these lines, and it'd be like you know, and he's charming. And he'd be like knocking on the door. Oh, you must be Sharon's sister. <laughs> you are both good looking. I don't know which one to root. <laughs> and we did we did a series of those, you know, that just involved Merrick playing some stupid different character with a wig on. But, you know, we had a bag of wigs and we used them pretty heavily. And, you know, people liked it. It would have been a really fun time because basically you're just getting all of your crazy ideas and then – Laying them down. And it was also a tricky time. And I think it's important to contextualise what was going on in Australia at the time in terms of we started doing comedy right during our last recession. So there wasn't a lot of work around and there was certainly not a lot of opportunities for comedy. There wasn't a lot of it on TV. Um, The the ABC weren't making a lot of shows. You didn't feel like someone's going to tap you on the shoulder and things are going to happen for a period of time. It was also a little bit tricky. It was quite a PC time. It seemed strange in the 90s in the inner city. So certain things, you, you know, people would get up in arms about all sorts of things. It was sort of a bit of success was like a ray of sunshine. You didn't feel like anything could happen. It, you felt like you could do things. Um, that 90s sort of do-it-yourself thing where, you, you know, with the band would make scenes and when you put on your own shows and... Within that world, you could make anything happen, but you didn't feel like, oh, my God, the next step will be, you know, I'm going to end up on Channel 9 type thing at that stage. You felt like those chances weren't really around. And the comedy was quite conservative in lots of ways on TV at that time. So when things started to move and then, you know, I don't think either of us thought we were going to get on the radio like we did. We'd always thought we'd be probably TV would have been the thing that we would have preferred to do, you know, the Triple J thing sort of fell on our laps and we sort of fell into radio and it was something I'd never imagined. It wasn't on my list of things to do. I'd always liked it, but I'd never listened to it. I don't think I'd listened to a breakfast show before it had, was on one. I guess that's in some ways a good thing because yeah. then you do it your way. Yeah, and I was surprised. I remember listening to, they went, oh, we got the breakfast show at Nova and I thought I better have a listen to what other people do. And I remember listening to Denton and um, Amanda and they were talking about, it was the first episode of The Weakest Link. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's how long ago it was. And they were going, oh, what do you think? And then they went to the phones. Did you like it or not? And I remember listening to him going, 
this is the biggest bag of shit <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Who the f*** is going to listen to you talk about what was on TV last night? Anyway, a year later I was doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, welcome to Breakfast Radio. <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, you end up doing things that you wouldn't imagine that you were going to do. So if you weren't, if you didn't think that that was ever going to be something that you would do, and you're also thinking that every opportunity is a surprise opportunity, mm. when you get that gig at Triple J, did you feel blessed? Did you feel confused? Did you feel like this isn't what I want to do? Did oh no, you... I didn't feel like it. I, it was exciting, right? Um, and you know, it was because we were around music and it was the bands and it was a, and the Jays was in a very very strong position at that mm. place, and. You know, we were lucky enough to get on air and allowed to fail. We were pretty ropey when we started. And then we got good at it after the first year. People liked it, but came back after the first year and, and we certainly knew what we were doing. And we had a couple of segments that, that really resonated with people that um, sort of set us up for it. And, yeah, same thing. You know, we w- and we worked really hard. We toured a lot. We're doing that. We toured constantly. Did you sort of have a conscious kind of, right, we need to make the most of this opportunity kind of feeling or no i just think our management made us work <laughs> right. no it was just there for the taking we liked it and so we used to go and you know we'd be in perth and you'd finish up and then you'd be hearing it back on the radio on your way to the venue because you're on delay and then we'd probably do maybe one or two shows that night and then you'd get up and do it and it was it was too much but we, you know mm. people liked it i like performing mm. was you it know? not i guess sometimes this business can be a pretty lonely one you know because mm. you're sort of a Gun for hire almost, mm. and you go get shipped around and mm. you do stuff wherever you put, and then you go, if you're a touring comedian, you might go and do a tour on your own, and mm. it can be a bit, you know, mm. lonesome. But I guess when you're with somebody there, it's like you... Sp- you yeah, and, and uh, yeah, and I, I don't quite know how I'd go just... Like, I tour now with my best mate, Kit, with, and we have a great time, you know, just drinking cups of tea now rather than getting... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, Mez and I just would, we would kill, we'd spend a lot of time to get on stage, but we just, sort of, we'd, we would hang out a lot together. And then, you know, I remember after doing one of those gigs at Livid, we would be out on one of the stages and having fun. And then the next day we were, weren't flying out till four o'clock or something. And it was in the time where you would, they'd roll in a TV with a VHS player so you could watch a movie. So I, oh. so we had, Mez said, oh, let's get a movie in the room. And so when the guy, I was lying on the ground with the doona over me. So when the guy rolled in, the thing, I was under the doona pretending to have a <laughs> wank. <laughs> and I was like, how oh, absurd is this stuff? But, but we loved it. We loved it. Did you – I've had a few people on this show talk about how you guys were quite generous in terms of getting them on your show. And I think Pete Hellier, Michelle Laurie, you know, people in that kind of milieu – that were coming up at the same time and you guys had obviously gotten a bit of success. Was that an important thing for you to kind of help other people in? Like, was it that sense of... Yeah, I just did it. Yeah. And it, it was part... It, I mean, um, and I never thought about it. Mm. I only thought about it when it wasn't reciprocated. And then I yeah. went, oh, hang on a second, not everyone does this. Yeah. And so... Um, was it a competitive amongst those people? I never was. People? Yeah. But it was. It had to be. A competitive... But it was from others, yeah. But yeah. I, never, I, I was very arrogant about what we did, no, without doubt. In and, what and, way? Um, I just had supreme confidence in it. That's in a different way than I do for my own personal stuff, mm. because it's not. It's that American Rosso world is a very specific thing, and how we ran it and operated was very different to the way that I do my own things. But mm. yeah, I think it was. 
I, I always was a big believer constantly is if you're having a good time, bring everyone along for the ride. And I still believe in that. And I wish more people did. There's sadly people are really petty about it. But, you know, that's them. When you were doing the radio, did you were you actively pursuing the TV stuff? Did you really want to get a gig on TV? Yeah, I think um, it was always part of the plan. I think we'd always it had always been from the start. We did the show for the Comedy Channel first before we started the J. So I think it was it was always top of mind for us. But whether or not, so that show was before you even started yeah, Triple J. Yeah. Oh, so was that because Mezzi was saying that artist services came to see your American yeah, Rosso one of those, 5000? Yeah, and I'd, done what, I'd, I'd made that film where it's the same thing with that editing thing of us being at Crown Casino dressed up as Bogans. Right. Going, oh, check this joint out. And people really liked it because it was that anti-establishment thing that we did quite well in those days. So what did they say when they gave you the Comedy Channel show? Was it basically, here's a show, do what you want? Yeah, here's five-minute interstitials, do more of those sorts of pranky things. So it began as little bits in yeah. between other shows? And, then, and that was really good for us because no one really had cable TV in those days. And then mm. we could take the films and play them in our live shows. And they were really good and well-cut-up films. So we'd go, oh, here's us in, a, in the park pretending that we're going to cut down trees in the botanical garden. <laughs> and people freaking out. <laughs> Um, so they gave you a crew and said, yeah, whatever you want to do. Yeah, and within reason. And we, I think we made 10 of them or something. And they were really good for us in terms of made our live show really cook. Did you, know. you? Your stuff is on YouTube, but did you? were you just a bit pre-YouTube? Yeah, Unplanned was pre-YouTube. B-Team was pre-YouTube. And then, yeah, the American Rosso show was probably the first time that we could exploit. And there's some stuff we were particularly doing for Unplanned where we I sort of was like waiting for the technology to sort of catch up. It was just, it was hard. Now I don't care. But then yeah. I, well, God knows what would have happened if we'd had that stuff. If we were starting today, wow. Because your I'd stuff. Be in, I'd be in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> but your stuff is perfect for that platform. That would Yeah, it would have been. It would have been good. But we still people found out things. It's not like people didn't know. Mm. You would just listen to your friends and your friends would say, oh, come along and see this. Were you doing like, because you were obviously doing radio across Triple J and then Nova and then you were doing TV as well. Mm. What was, was the workload crazy at mm. that time? Was mm. it just you, you guys were just working around the clock? Mm. Too much. But there's no real choice, right? Oh, no, there was. Oh, there I mean, was? the one that did my head in was we did when we did the B team for 10, it just didn't work. What was and the B team? I can't remember that. And it was just studio show, sketches, live audience. And I took that. I put so much into it that it didn't work for mm. lots of different reasons. And then I worked out why. But that caused me a lot of grief. Mm. And we're just too busy. We were too stretched. We tried to do too much. And lots of that show was my vision. It was both of our vision, but a lot of it was really, you know, I was heavily involved. And, yeah, it, it upset me that it didn't work. Which is a shame, but then you you learn from those mistakes. I guess it's it didn't get axed, but it just didn't really. No, you don't wow. remember it, yeah. Yeah, it. I guess I had this did this great sketch called um, probably my favourite thing that it was called um, Bernie Millionaire, and it was like The Bachelor, but he's Bernie from Weekend Bernie. <laughs> so here's the twist: our <laughs> handsome bachelor is a corpse. <laughs> It was a great idea. The execution was terrible, but there's Mez dressed up as Bernie and the girls are dating with him and he's got fake flies on him. And, and when he had to point at which one he wanted to say, there was a piece of rope and I, you know, the butler was pulling it. It's worth a look on. But it was really, I, I loved that sketch. And we did, and we just, we'd had some really good ideas and we just didn't, 
We just couldn't execute them properly because we just were too busy. I suppose it's almost impossible in this business, though, to and say also, no yeah, to anything. Yeah, and, and someone's saying, oh, do you want to go to – when we went to America and did all this prank stuff and I dressed up as Russell Crowe and all that stuff. It was great fun. But just I suppose you can't then – it's almost like you don't have the time to be strategic about it or think what's the best way to execute this. It's just like, shit, let's grab oh, at and these yeah, things. And everyone – yeah, no one's really done it before. You know, there's always people around. But you're, most of the time you're in a situation where – no one was, they weren't making that much TV or content. Mm. So it's not like, oh, here's such and such. This producer's an expert at this stuff. Yes. There were, there's 10 times the amount of producers and people who know how to do this stuff now than there was then. Yep. And not making, but, you know, we, we were all learning together. Totally. Yeah. You're cobbling it together. Yeah. When you made the jump to Nova, when you, did, you got poached, did you, from the Jays? Was that a shock? Uh, did you know something like that was coming? It came out of the blue and I, and, I mean, I didn't want to go. I find sometimes I've, you know, I've worked with people that work on the ABC and then there's almost like a we're selling out if we go to the commercial radio side of things. I don't know. Did you feel a bit that? Yeah, and it's a very old-fashioned concept to sell out. Yeah. Um, people probably don't get their head around it. But at the time, I, I loved that audience. Mm. I loved it. And it was the best audience we ever had. And when you say goodbye to that, it's hard. And I remember, you know, we didn't really tell anyone. We put down the headphones and bawled my eyes out. Um, you didn't have a lush? You didn't tell? No, we didn't tell them. So you just left. Mm. You didn't have a goodbye show, nothing. Mm-hmm. What you? And just I went to say. Normally, I'd, I remember saying, "And normally, we'd say, I'll see you next year." And I went, "I'll see ya." And that was it. And then headphones went down. And Why did you decide not to say anything? Oh, I think it was confidentiality clause or something that I'm breaching now or something. Yeah. Oh really? No. We are you? <laughs> Don't know. Don't care. <laughs> um, oh, that's hard. Mm. Because how long had you been on the Jays for? We've been two years, and not a long time in real. Now, when we think about it, because the impact of what we did was probably felt because it was quite a successful show, mm. um, and we were there for a couple of years before that. So when you say to people, "Oh, we're only there '98, '99, or '99, 2000 full time," sort of shocks people because people felt like we were there for a lot longer. Yeah, because because we're there for two years. On the drive show as, as guests. Yeah. And but bits and pieces and Sunday afternoon shows and stuff. But people feel a certain attachment to that show even now that, mm. you know, fans of Triple J, mm. it's like not, you know, and I think, gosh, there's a million radio shows that come and go, mm. you know, but to really stand out if you've only done two years, like there'd be a lot of Triple J listeners that would constantly. Yeah. I mean, like where they're just like, we're just like Grinspring. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're, just, we're just the. Grinspoon. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're Grinspooners. Yeah. You you now are doing more solo stuff and your Man About the House tour. And was that an interesting shift because you hadn't really done that? Or did you feel almost like it's like a grown up thing? I feel comfortable now to do this stuff by myself. Like, was it a conscious shift? Oh, I just had this sort of pull to do. And to actually to go back to what I started doing. I had fallen out of love with performing. I had probably towards the end of things with Mez probably doing things for the wrong reason. I think money got started to come into yeah. play or whatever. I just forgot the simple things. And so I just went back to the start again. And then I got real and I, I created a new performance style, you know, new material, a whole a new idea. And the basis of it is pretty much like starting again in a very small and intimate way and, and learning to love what I do. Does it feel liberating? Yeah. I mean it's a bizarre thing to go from, you know, sometimes I'm, I perform for 40 people in a house. And so you say hi to them, so there's no backstage. It's, it, to me, it seems a very modern way of doing things because most things are peer-to-peer now. So you imagine 20 years ago when I'm performing, 
people are pissed and you don't want to talk to them, you hide from them, or you talk to them after the show, but really they're blind and they're being because mm. that's what people in their 20s do. But those people are now adults and they've got grown-up jobs and you're probably going to be your friends that you'd meet when you're at a barbecue and mostly interesting people come to our show because they're professional and they're interested in architecture and design or just being interested or interesting. So suddenly you're opening yourself up to a whole bunch of different experiences in terms of who you're going to meet, who you're going to chat to. And for years I've been doing shows and the most interesting people you're going to meet who come to my show would never meet them. Mm. But now in a world where I can be on Instagram and I reply to most people who talk to me, it seems to me to make total sense. That barrier between me as a performer and the audience has disappeared. They're adults. They're not gonna. No one's gonna try and touch me on the special place. <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> um, and it's ridiculously difficult as a performer, sometimes as a comedian, to perform to small audiences because you don't have that sheer noise. To yeah. So it has made me a vastly better comedian. That's good. And I'm a better comedian now than I've ever been before. That's good. Yeah. And I love speaking in a way that I never did before. And because I don't have the constraints of... No one's had a conversation with me about a story arc for four years. It's a very good place to be. Nobody's brought you into a room and replayed yeah. your gig and gone, this is where you weren't funny yeah. enough. I, I, I have, and I have this story that I do in the show, which is we put to a song. I do a lot of music in the show. It's my favourite... It's a, it's a, I'm not going to do it here, but it's a story about how Lupe Fiasco came to my house. <sighs> and... I told that story on radio and got my ass kicked for going too long. And now every time I do it in a live thing, it just like blows the roof off. Yeah. And so it's that freedom to say, well, I want to do this. I want to create that. And I look at design in the same way that I look at, you know, you know what we're, we're attuned to be constantly looking for content. And I don't like work, using the word content. But what we both do is we're constantly looking at things and hearing things and go, how can I turn that into a story mm. or whatever it is my mind and my eyes look at design in the same way. Right. So I feast off that as well. So that's being able to go, okay, I want to be able to go look at this house plus I'm going to maybe curate some experiences here and we're going to do some funny. So it's just sort of like throwing all the things I love. Some of my favourite designers, these guys, Ray and Charles, American designers. I met their grandson, Eames Demetrius. He's a lovely guy. And he gave me a book of their quotes and I don't like quotes, inspirational quotes. Mm. But anyway... I opened up the book when I was there and looking at it in Los Angeles and the quote was, take your pleasure seriously. And that's what I do. Which is give, I give the things, the, my passion, the respect they d- deserve. Whereas most people, we sort of f- forget that we, we fall into jobs that we don't want to do. Mm. We just go, oh, I'm going to be here for a year and you end up doing it for 10 years. Or people who say, oh, I used to play the piano but I don't do it anymore. Or I used to ski but I don't or I don't run anymore. I don't understand how you, if you learn how to play the piano, you wouldn't play it every day. Mm. But we will give over our, we'll sit there at night replying to work emails. So what I do is exactly that. And I didn't realise the whole pathway doing the show took me there as I take my pleasure seriously and I give the things I truly love the respect that they deserve. And it's a different path, but it's a really fulfilling one. And I, the thing I'm most proud of what I've done is Streets of Your Town, the TV show I made for the ABC because I'd been wanting to make that forever. Really? And it took five years of my life. But it's the thing that most people talk to me about and it's the most thing that might move more people than anything else I've done. Were you pitching it for that whole five years? Yeah, or was it went it through different producers, different like knockback for funding for one other reason and then finally we got to make it and then it sat on the shelf at the ABC for a year as well before oh, they played shit, it. Oh, shit, that's frustrating. Yeah, I knew it was there. Just went on and did other things. And then, and then it dropped and it really connected with people. So what do you want to be doing more of in the future then, more of that sort of stuff? Yeah, it just makes make, – and because I'm broadly interested in Australian stories. So it's really – it's history. It's like design and history put it together and – because globalisation means that our stories are in real danger of disappearing. So that's why 
podcasts are really good for this. And so we, if I'm, whether I'm working live or I'm curating exhibitions, your pathways to audience, are, you know, I'm constantly challenging myself with how I find them and where you can do that. But what a cool evolution, you know. Sometimes I feel like people get stuck in this business in that one trick pony thing. It's like mm. this is what I do, this is how I know how I know what to do. But it's like you've managed to find a way to take different aspects of your talent and passion and mush. Yeah. And it, like I can't imagine that anybody ten years ago would have thought you'd be curating something at a no. you know, <laughs> no. like a design show at a museum. No, and I, I and I, I when I first, the first time I was asked to speak about design, I was still at Nova and it was at the Powerhouse Museum and that was the opening of Design Week. And I think someone had seen that I'd been a collector or something. And I was just about to go on stage and I was so nervous because I felt the pressure of being that person on commercial radio mm. talking about design to a design audience. And so I, I, I'd done my head in thinking about what I was going to say. And then just before I got on stage, a woman from the publicist from the museum said to me she said i'm just letting you know that the um the curators here didn't want you to do this but i think you're going to be great oh, <laughs> <shit>. <laughs> I mean, oh. um but all this time later you know um and they it's sort of nice and the beautiful thing about today is that you can turn the ship around in terms of it's not like i'm trying to rebrand or anything like that i just started doing the things that i really loved within time you can people can see that if it, if you're honest about it i suppose and i don't think anyone doesn't think i'm honest about it because some of the things i choose to do are quite peculiar but and it's clearly not for money it's all, it's also about finding something that you feel like you have some kind of control over because commercial radio media in general can feel a little out of your control like mm. you're just being mm. dragged along mm. behind a truck and you're holding on for dear life and yes the money's going in the bank but at the same time you're like riddled with insecurity mm. because you're constantly wondering whether you're going to get signed again it feels totally out of your hands mm. so there's something about once you have all of that practice and that knowledge and that experience within you and you know how to put on a good show you know how to make people yeah. laugh you know how to curate a good experience then all of a sudden kind of turning that into something that you can own yeah that's you it gives you a sense of pride in what you're doing that makes you feel fulfilled in a way that the media business can't often give you no and we're in control of everything and mm. then you know and, and sure at sometimes it's it, it's sheer middle class entertainment but it's sort of who i am and you can really do it all with you know you run your business out of your phone you've got a reasonable following and you've got a good mailing list you can do anything but for me, and I like I'm working at the show at the moment where I'm going to do a show in a 1960s car park, and then I've got this installation where I've got an 80s dad there with a Commodore vacationer that will talk to you if you ask him questions. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. But you know, um, and then now yeah, that's before the show, and it's totally bonkers, and it's totally you know, it's it's got a bit of art wank to it, but it's totally lovely in Australia as well. It's also unique for like people want unique experiences, yeah. you know. Yes, I can go and I can see a show that I've seen a million times before, but go and speak to an eighties dude yeah. who's going to answer my questions. You know, and I think the the ability for people, you know, men at a certain age to get extremely boring when get down a rabbit hole of things is pretty full on and I am that guy you know you literally you wake up one day and you turn into the guy who sees a piece of plastic in the <laughs> park and you need to know where it came from <laughs> what do you think that's off son what do you think that's from so but it is I, I know I also am incredibly proud of being able to create something new at a later edge of my life because most of us sort of you know you would do the same thing but to do something new and and I love working overseas when we can with the design stuff's sort of nice and we've been able to go to the UK a bit like every year and 
that's sort of fun. Also, just a good excuse to poke about in people's houses. I just yeah. there's <laughs> in good in houses that are cool and interesting, yeah, and you're and just I, like I get to poke about in yeah, that. They're for really a bit. good. You get sort of thing, <laughs> and, and they, architecture moves me deeply. Mm, that's like, cool. Yeah, and, that's cool. But all design does. But and I think I was filming recently at this house in the Sutherland Shire, Sydney, beautiful 1960s home, and a lot of people look at it and don't get it. And the woman was telling me how this cab driver said I couldn't live in that thing bloody ridiculous and she said would you like to come inside and have a look so he came upstairs and looked at the porthole that goes straight into the pool that the middle of the house is in and then up and then sees the view and sees that the house is all built around a courtyard and And he goes oh this is amazing i love this house and to me that sort of epitomizes why i like talking about design is because if you what you really want to do is is take the cab driver bring him inside go oh wow have a look at this in a different way and so, yeah, I end up talking about stack hats. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel like you've changed? I'm grey. <laughs> I'm grey. You are grey. I am grey and you I are. need glasses. And um, <laughs> I'm just, I'm patient. That's a good quality. Yeah. What do you think is the best and the worst thing about showbiz? The best thing is performance high. And I've been really lucky to do some interesting things still my favorite thing is being able to pay to get to sing amongst all the things that i do you know and kit and i write really good songs now and we didn't 20 odd years ago and that's been nice to come back to that original friendship of playing in a funny band and then to be able to do that is is great but you know being able to talk and people listen and what i realized more recently is that the high from people listening and connecting with the story is just as good as getting a laugh. So that sometimes I'm a bit boring. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And the worst thing is, yeah, the uncertainty. But, you know, you get used to that. True. Sort of. Sort of. Oh, God. Uh, Right, we're down to the final five questions before you have to go off and do dad duties. We're we're good. We're good. We're right on time. We're right on time. time. Your biggest regret? Never buying a PA. Never buying a PA. Yeah. So, you know, oh, like oh I thought you meant a personal assistant. No. I'm like, you don't buy the person. No, no, no. So, <laughs> seven years, when I had a bar, I bought a PA, a public address system, you know, like microphones yeah, yeah. and yep. speakers. And back in the day, the amount of money I spent on hiring a PA. Oh, God. Nuts. God. So, like, if you think about the times I hired it, and I sort of, like, if I could go back in time, one thing I would do, I'd go back to 1993 and go, don't hire this, guys. Let's go buy one. Um, I know it seems absurd, but... That hands down my favourite biggest regret <laughs> of any interview yeah. I've done so far. <laughs> Not buying a VA. Um, your dream gig. I th- when I did Streets, I had this moment <clears throat> where I was driving a Mini in South Australia and I'd just been to some great house. and That for me was, if I never do this ever again, I never go- get to make another television series. I'm a happy person because it was... God, I want to do this. God, this is an important story to tell. And it, it's a series that has changed certain things when it comes to preservation of houses. It changed people's view of a whole bunch of things, how we live. Um, and it gave some people some great entertainment. And then, I, you know, I also wouldn't mind being a salesperson for a large architecture firm where I could just go out to lunch and go, you know what, you should go with these guys because that's what they do. Can I have another bottle of that, please? <laughs> um, that would be a fantastic gig. I thought you were going to say a salesperson for somebody else, but no, that's no, fine. No, that's no. that's yeah, no, doable. I'd love to be, yeah. You know, I'd love to be head of sales <laughs> at ARN. <laughs> that would be amazing. 
Just go, um, <laughs> what are we going to do? Oh, yeah. Um, we've got uh, McDonald's have got $500,000. What can we do, guys? Can we ask the breakfast team where they come up with some ideas? <laughs> you know, and the amount oh, of, God. one of the things I love is the amount of time for those of you who are lucky enough to work in a radio station still. But if you take the amount of time that you spend and the energy that you spend on creating sales solutions and you put that into your own career. Oh, yes. Like, wow. Yeah. You know, one of the really soul-destroying things is when you've spent hours in a meeting trying to come up with uh, ideas for agency and then you s- and then they pass on that for your show, but then you see that same client, the television, on the television, the ad that you came up oh. with in the meeting <laughs> that they've oh. just taken to the client and got, like, honest to God, mm. there's, there's just enough. so much wrong with everything. Uh, a big idea that you've yet to get up. You don't have to tell me the exact thing, but is there is there a film in you? Is there more mm. telly stuff? No, I really want to. I want to build something to perform in. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so I I commissioned this guy who did this wonderful graphic wall art for me, and I just loved it. And I thought, why don't we do that if that was a building, and you could come inside and could, and then I can sort of I don't get kicked out. It's in a park somewhere, sort of Spiegel tent style. Yeah, but it's better than a Spiegel tent. Like it's Would you pack it down, move it on? It's not maybe there like all the I, time. like I keep talking to people about building a modernist tent that we could mm. move around to do things. But I'd like so that's the the next step for me is to go. Okay, how can we build a really interesting venue? And it could be anywhere. Like we're going to drive somewhere, and then it's like, look oh, at this shit. Cool. Let's let's go and camp here and watch the show. That's so, really yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, if you weren't, then I'd like to host a panel show. <laughs> <laughs> if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Um, I'd really, yeah, being a salesman for an architecture firm, but I'd probably be, yeah, I think I'd be a sort of some, I'd like festival director, I reckon. Well, you'd be quite good at I that. I think I'd be a good festival you director because be involved. That. What do you think? Yeah, I'd love to have that ballet. Can I have another bottle of that? Because uh, <laughs> I'm seeing a yeah, theme develop here. Uh, and finally, your advice to people wanting to get into the business. I always live by the uh, motto of you don't get on TV by watching TV. And so everyone's accessible now. Write letters. Don't seek advice when you are not really seeking advice. You're looking for a leg up. They're two distinct things. Bingo. Right. So when someone says, I'd like to get some advice, you know, then if you have advice, actually ask for it. Mm. Say, how, do, how could I reach these goals? Not, hi, this is what I do. How can you make this happen <laughs> for me? Um, the price of a cup of coffee is not worth that stuff. <laughs> so um, and be happy to fail. Because from failure, everything good comes. And just go for it, you know. And there's so many interesting ways you can create now. Mm. It's like the best time ever. You know, be bold, be brave. We lasted all this time and the batteries didn't run out. Amazing. <laughs> we made it Rosso, thanks so much for joining me. People aren't going to hear this, are they? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I just had this for do you want me to ask you what your biggest regret is again? Yeah, no. <laughs> no, I it just might remember, be this. I just, you know what the biggest regret is? Because I remember seeing someone on Twitter say, oh, saying, Rach, God, you get them to spill, don't you? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> fuck. God. It's all right. We can yeah. beep out anything yeah, legal. Yeah, can you just go back and edit anything out that <laughs> yep. involves American Rosso? <laughs> sure. Thank you. Thanks, Rach. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. Thanks so much for joining me for my chat with Rosso. And make sure you head to his website as well to check out his Man About the House tour. If you get a chance to go and see one of the shows, I highly recommend it. Not only do you get a good gig, but you also get 
get to poke around in a cool house. Now, I have a bit of good and bad news to share. The good news is that this show will continue. The bad news is that next week will be the final weekly show for a while. I have more interviews on the horizon, but I just won't be dropping them weekly for a while. Unfortunately, time has got the better of me, but I will not let this little baby die. I've got some great chats coming up and make sure you're subscribed to the show because if you are subscribed and all you need to do is click on the little button in whatever app you listen to the show, you will immediately get a notification when the show drops straight into your podcast app. So if you don't want to miss out, make sure you've hit the subscribe button. Next week, I'm going to be chatting with the delightful Chris Brown and you must join me for the tales of how he went from a vet to a television presenter. It's a very interesting tale. But one of my favourite moments was when he shares a story that's got nothing to do with his career. It was just damn hilarious of the time he broke his arm trying to do the worm. That was a dynamic move, by the way. <laughs> never, never attempted before, never attempted since. <laughs> the detail about it that I love is that didn't you take a run up? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like who takes a run up for a worm? That's the whole point. I hope you'll join me for that chat. It's a great one. I'll see you next week. 